We're in the final week of our series called Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come. And it's all about introverts and extroverts and our complicated relationships. If you remember the last few weeks, we've been talking about the introvert-extrovert scale with um, unhealthy introverts living on the far end, the fear end of this scale, unhealthy extroverts living on the foolish end of this scale. In the middle, we have what's called an ambivert, somebody who can be either. And we're calling this the range of health and faith in the middle right here. And uh, if it feels like you're coming in on the back third of a movie, that's because you're coming in on the back third of a three-part series. And uh, you could go online and catch up if you'd like, um, because you will have no clue what we're, just kidding, it'll be fine. But uh, be helpful, you gain more if you check that out. Our key passage for this series has been um, the most important passage really in the whole Bible, Matthew 22, 37, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, which is kind of confusing, Jesus, because you said this is the first and greatest, but the second is equally, which is most important. Jesus is perfectly okay with conundrums, okay? A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The whole Bible. This is the whole Bible right here, Jesus says. That's why we focus on it a lot, because Jesus says this, this matters. Problem is, what do you do when you want to love your neighbor as yourself, but you hate yourself? Like, how, how do you love your neighbor if it's like, well, but I actually, I, I don't like me. So if I love them like I love me, it's not gonna be very nice, you know? Or what do you do when your neighbor's just kind of a jerk? It's like, God, you don't know the people you surrounded me with. Like, are you sure this applies to them? Because they're like vampires. They like suck the life right out of me, you know? And today I wanna talk about some barriers to loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Even if you're not a Christian, I think you'll find this last installment very helpful. The teachings of Jesus always are. I would dare say they're revolutionary. This is life-changing. What I'm gonna do if you're a controlling person like me and you need to know what's gonna happen is I'm gonna start with a story. I'm gonna point out some things. Then we're gonna turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter two, starting at verse 11. And we'll exposit some of that verse by verse. And then I'll have some application stuff at the end. And when we get to this point, you're gonna be like, are you just now getting to your points? Don't worry, I know what I'm doing. That's what I always tell my wife. Don't worry, I know what I'm doing. You know, And then we're in big trouble on the side of the road, broken down. But anyway, uh, this last fall, I was playing ultimate Frisbee with the staff. We're having a lot of fun, but it's hard to realize when you're at that place in your life where you're just getting weaker every day. You know what I mean? I'm deep into middle age. I'm long past my prime and I'm on the slow decline. You know, I get up and it's like, what am I doing when I get out of chairs? Why am I walking like I've been riding a horse for three hours? You know what I mean? I've been sitting in a recliner, but I can't stand up straight. Well, anyway, um, I'm playing with the staff and I've always kind of relied on the fact that I'm very fast and I have a lot of endurance. Like I'm faster than, you know, most people. And now I'm the oldest guy on staff by a goodly margin. And I'm running next to another staff member. They, by the way, put their strongest, fastest guy to guard me, which, you know, was flattering. I won't say his name um, in the story, but it was Noah Felton and uh, worship director at Hebron, okay? And we're running full speed. And like just a few months ago, I was running full speed next to Noah and I would like pass him. You know, I'd go past him. This time I'm running full speed and I'm like, am I down a cylinder? Like what's, what's going on? Why am I not like pulling away? Like what is, what is wrong? And I'm just... <laughs> I'm getting really angry, like more and more angry because Noah is completely neutralizing me. And I don't know if you've ever been playing a sport like this where you're just shut down. It's like, I'm just playing tag. Like, why am I even here? You know what I mean? Like, I'm, not, I'm out of the game. And what was really frustrating is Noah was pulling away from me, catching Frisbees. I don't like that, right? He's catching Frisbees, scoring touchdowns. All I'm doing is causing turnovers for my team. Very, very angry. Well, eventually somebody throws a sloppy disc. It's up in the air, right? And me and Noah go up for it. Now I have some vertical and I think I'm gonna get to it. But with Noah, and this is my memory. 
which is not correct, right? We all make narratives in our minds that like vindicate our actions, okay? This is what I remember Noah doing, which I wanna be clear. This is not what Noah actually did. This is just what my memory says. But we're in the air and Noah gives me the people's elbow in the larynx, right? Gives me a choke slam down, right? And I go down to the ground, not what happened, but it's what I remember happening. And um, in my mind, Noah just murdered me. I have been murdered, like I am dead, right? And I'm on the ground. And if you've been murdered, you'd be pretty upset, wouldn't you? I'm like, Noah, you are a murderer. Like, I can't believe you just did that to me. And I get up and I'm losing my temper because obviously I've just been killed. Who wouldn't be upset? And um, I'm putting together this sermon this week. It's been like, I don't know, five months since that happened. And I asked Aubrey on her staff, I said, Aubrey, you know, remember this story? Like, do you remember it? It was a long time ago and it's okay if you don't. She's like, Pastor, how could I forget that story? It's like one of the most awkward moments on our entire staff. It's like an episode of The Office watching Michael Scott just make a fool of himself in front of his whole team. I was like, nice, perfect. Yeah, super awkward. Well, I remember driving home that day and have you just ever hated yourself? I hated myself so hard. I was like, you are so stupid, John. What a fool. What were you thinking? You're a terrible leader. You should be ashamed. Like you don't have what it takes to lead. Like you're such a pretender. What are you thinking? You're terrible. You're dumb. Shame, shame, shame. For weeks, I would relive that moment in my mind. Same thoughts, same conclusions. You're terrible. You're a terrible leader. You're shameful. What were you, what were you thinking? And that's what I want to talk about today. This important concept called shame, shame. Shame today, we don't even understand what it is. It's often confused with guilt, but they're slightly different. Guilt says you did something bad. Shame says you are bad. When it comes to living in the healthy range we're talking about here, I really believe we have to learn the mechanics of handling shame effectively. It's critical. One of the major reasons I think we end up outside of this range is because we do not handle our shame correctly. Extroverts and introverts actually handle shame pretty differently, according to the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Um, Unhealthy extroverts tend to pass over their shame very quickly. They especially have a tendency to blame others. They will seek more social experiences. They'll start, you know, an Amway multi-level marketing thing. They'll do whatever. They'll go on to this, buy a truck, do that, start this, blame other people, get angry, 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 move past it, get a new group of friends, ignore it. For extroverts, not dealing with shame a lot of times results in anxiety. Right? You're anxious because you have this big skyscraper of shame that you haven't dealt with and you want to avoid it falling on you and getting buried by it. Unhealthy introverts handle their shame differently. They will revel in it. They'll just roll around it. I'm such a bad person. I'm just the worst. I'm such a fool. I'm terrible. I'm getting older because I just turned around one time and I'm very dizzy, okay? <laughs> Often isolating themselves. They're paralyzed by their shame. They live, instead of in anxiety, they live in depression and self-loathing, unable to move past it. Occasionally there's a flip, but in general, this is how the two different types of people will process their shame. Now we live in an extroverted world that tends to value extroverted perspectives. Hasn't always been this way. I intended to include a big history of extroversion coming into the American psyche, but I ran out of time. So you guys are just gonna miss it, but it is really interesting, but I won't tell you about it, okay? Um, The extroverted process of handling shame sounds really tantalizing to me as an introvert. I'm like, that'd be dope. Just like kind of not worrying about it. Like, wow, cool, right? But I remember as a kid, This process of handling shame was plastered everywhere. Like in our weight room, in gym, I remember we had this poster up. It said, believe in yourself. You're stronger than you think. Just believe in you and you can lift these weights. And it's like, nope, I just tore my labrum trying to do that. Like that's, believing didn't work, okay? I remember this one on the side of Mrs. Cerna House's classroom wall in third grade. You're amazing. Just the way that you are. Feel no shame. You are amazing. Okay, remember this one right here. You have to believe in yourself to succeed. Just be positive. The problem 
is that shame is a critical component of the human process. And our society says you should feel no shame. I mean, society will condemn people we don't know on Twitter, of course, cancel them. They're terrible, shame, shame, shame. When it comes to people we know, especially our children, <laughs> they're such good kids. They're such good kids. God has just given me, how often do we? I have just such good kids. They're just so good. We do not teach the next generations how to process shame effectively. We don't talk about the benefits when it comes to shame in our kids and family. We just say, well, you shouldn't have it because you're good, you're good. We tell them on Instagram, how many Instagram posts are just like, oh my goodness, oh, you're beautiful just the way you are, waterfall, butterfly, whatever, you know, unfollow, whatever, you know, like mute, that's what it is. But dealing with shame is critical to human growth, cooperation, compromise, and community, according to the same study I just cited. It's critical to learning to love people as you love yourself. In other words, this is a big deal, okay? Big point, and it rhymes. It's pretty cool, okay? It says, shame does not define you, it refines you. Shame is this thing that God gave to us to refine our character. It plays a critical role in our life and not processing shame, not training our kids to handle shame, just telling them they shouldn't feel it results in brutal awakenings when they get into the real world. They go to college and all of a sudden they realize after they graduate that they're not like God's gift to whatever. They hit this brick wall and it's like, ah, how do I deal with these feelings? I don't know. It means you can't grow. When you don't deal with shame effectively, when you don't have the skill of dealing with shame, when you can't process it, you can't grow. And literally my mom told me in the first grade that I was so handsome. How many moms do you know? They look at their sons. What is with this? Like they look at their sons and they're like, <sighs> you know, and it's like, really? You know, that kid, like, just like that. Oh, you're so handsome. My wife with our son all the time. Oh, you're just so handsome, whatever. My mom told me, true story. My mom told me I was so handsome that she was concerned I might get kidnapped and forced to be a male model. That's what she said. She's like a child male. You are that handsome, not a joke. I'll let you guys be the judge. Here's a picture of me and my mom. I mean, in first grade, I strutted into school. I have this colostomy bag. You can't see it under here because it's not full yet, but I'd have my poop bag just hanging out below my shirt. I strutted into school thinking I could be a male model. That's how handsome I am, you know? And it was crazy because not everybody saw that in me, you know? And I felt shame, felt awkward. I felt shame for feeling shame, you know? And society does this with kids. Got to take that down. Society does this with kids. <laughs> Might distract you with my handsomeness, okay? Society does this with kids all the time. We tell them, oh, you're going to go to the moon. You know, you're going to go to the moon. You're going to be president. You know, you, you are going to the NBA. So what if you've topped out at five foot three and you're white? You've got it. Just keep trying. We need another Muggsy Bogues. The other day, I called the parent of the worst kid I've ever dealt with. And by the other day, I mean over 10 years ago before I got here. That means I'm getting old when the other day references something over a decade ago. But the other day, I called the parent of this kid who was truly awful. Like this is the worst kid. You know what the mom said? All you teachers already know. You know the line. He's just such a good kid. He's just, you don't know him like, like I know him. It's like, clearly I don't. Like he is psychotic, you know? This is, his teachers have always just bullied him. His teachers have just, they don't see the potential that I see because, and here's the problem. My son is gifted and he's just not been, I'm sorry. He's just not been challenged. If you knew him like I knew him, guys, what are we doing? We're stopping shame from functioning in its all important role. Shame doesn't define you. It refines you. And parents need to understand this. God gave shame to us for a reason. It plays an important role in our life. And if you reject shame in your life completely, if you do not process it correctly, you will not grow and be refined. As introverts, we just end up depressed, miserable, and alone. What do we do? 
If we get confronted with shame, we just, oh, and we shut down and we go into our room and we get depressed. You know, we stop eating, we play video games, just ramen noodles only. And everybody around us, our parents are like walking on eggshells, like don't say anything, we're gonna lose her for a whole month and it's gonna be awful and just whatever because we don't know how to process it. Look, it doesn't define you, it refines you. Parents, it's our job to teach kids to be refined by shame. Or as extroverts, what do we do? Right, we end up offended and angry with a victim mentality, thinking everybody's out to get us, the world isn't fair, and I'm just gonna move on to this and that, and I'll start another thing, and we never have close relationships because we're jumping from group to group and thing to thing because we built up too much shame over there, and we'll come back in a few months after it's kind of passed over, but I'm going over here right now, and what do we have? A bunch of relationships that are mile wide and inch deep, and we're lonely, surrounded by people. Lonely, surrounded by people. Because as extroverts, we can't handle our shame either. And this is our society today. We raised two generations without the ability to process shame. Gen Z and millennials. And nobody looks at them and is like, you know what? Thank God for those posters. Magic bullet. You know, wow, that really worked. I mean, you look at them and it's like that poster. Oh my goodness. You know, I believed in myself and now I'm just indestructible. No, when you look at this scale, for the people on this end, which is an increasingly large number of people shut down and depressed, they're unable to escape. And it's so funny because Satan told us to lie that we're good people. And you'd think that that'd be a good thing, but it traps you. Shame doesn't define you, but it does refine you. There's a whole range of extroverts, same thing. Can't grow, surrounded by people, but lonely, but lonely, but lonely, because we can't deal with our shame. Last week, we talked about my man, Moses. I relate to him a ton in the Bible. He had an unhealthy neural pathway. Last week, we talked about these neural pathways that develop, right? We talked about how, you know, our introversion, extroversion, it's not really genetic. A lot of it has to do with these pathways that develop we noted that Moses developed these unhealthy neural pathways, specifically in regard to shame. Eventually, Moses has this conversation with God in a burning bush. And remember, Moses' unhealthy shame pathway, what did he do? He's like, no, I can't do it. You know, I don't know your name. My God, I don't know. I get tongue-tied. Please send anybody else, God. I can't do it. He's just reveling in his shame, right? We'll let him to that place. The Bible gives us many hints. We can see one of the major moments where he's forming this unhealthy neural pathway because he didn't process his shame well. Moses does something really shameful. It's really shameful. In Exodus chapter two, verse 11, it says, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. Now you gotta understand, Moses is adopted. And at this point, I believe it's implied, he feels some frustrations and rejection from his adopted family. So he goes out to visit his people, his bio family. He's meeting his biological family. And he sees this thing happening. He's like, well, I wanna ingratiate myself to them. And so he goes, after looking in all directions, making sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Yikes. That is shameful. Moses did, I mean, a bad thing. Like Moses, bro, that was like, that's murder. You know, I mean, that's like, that's bad. You should probably go into hiding. You're probably wanted for murder. Okay, Exodus 2, verse 13, it says, the next day Moses went out to visit his people again. Hey, it's me. Like, you like me now? Because I did that thing. He saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses told uh, the one that had started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you to be prince and judge? Are you gonna kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Moses is shocked. He thought he would be ingratiated. Like they, would, they would like him, they would accept him, but instead they don't like him. And he's rejected by his adopted family and he's rejected by his bio family and he's done this shameful thing and he does not know how to process his shame effectively. It says, then Moses was afraid, thinking everybody knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened and he tried to kill Moses. Now Moses is out, he's out. Moses fled from Pharaoh, went to live in the land of Midian. Moses felt shame and he couldn't process it. 
Do you guys know how long Moses was in the land of Midian before God spoke to him in the bush? 40 years. Moses lived in shame and fear. Four decades, he's living in the land of Midian, just reveling in his shame like a true introvert. You're such a terrible person. You're a murderer. You can't talk. Your bio family doesn't want you. Your adopted family doesn't want you. Shame, shame. You're the worst, Moses. You're the worst. That's what he's telling himself in his head. I wonder how many of us have lost decades, years, because we don't handle shame effectively. Extroverted society would say we should not feel Shame, unhealthy extroverts embrace outrage, victim mentalities, rioting, protesting, shouting, yelling, conspiracy theories, whatever, finding offense all the time. It's other people. You know, it's other people. It's not me. It's them. It's the system. It's this and that. Introverts revel, roll around in their shame. No path forward. They just are stuck. They miss out on the fact that shame doesn't define us. It refines us. And society just, it tells us, I think Satan through society tells us we're not shameful. And it results in this horrible situation where nobody really knows how to deal with it. Years ago, this is a good story. Years ago, I saw this in action. I went to a junior high play. I used to have to do that for my job. It's one of the reasons I'm really glad I'm not a youth pastor anymore. But uh, anyway, I went to lots of them. I went to this one. This is one of the worst ones I've ever been to. I mean, none were professional. Some were, some were all right. This one was not good. And uh, this is one of those plays. It just had, first off, it had constant AV issues. And I'm like, Why? Like, did we not see this coming? Like we've been rehearsing forever and we didn't think to turn on the microphones and check the batteries, but nevertheless, okay. And it droned on forever. Poor lady, poor director. She's up front. Everybody is forgetting their lines. She's up there like paging through, mouthing it to him, like tear coming down her eyes. Like I need to change my career, whatever, right? And then we had a musical number and we had a live band, like sixth grade band that was really struggling and they all got lost. The musical, they got lost. So like two minutes in, they restart the musical number to like do the first two minutes over again correctly. And I'm like, could we have just skipped to the end though? Why do we have to do this over again? Like this is just, it's just one of those moments. Then this is bad, like two thirds of the way in, it's been, it's been a train wreck. And the, um, the star of the play uh, has a breakdown. You know, and now it's real awkward because she's like breaking down, crying, running off the stage. It's like, what are we going to do? Like, are we done? Are we done? But she gets a pep talk from everybody. And then she comes back out like an injured fifth grade soccer player who broke their leg, but then all of a sudden's running on it just fine. Like everybody's like, yay, you know, applauding. And it's like, but okay. And then afterward, this is the awkward part. Okay. We're all standing in the lobby, like waiting for the, the cast members to come out, you know, as you do with your flowers and your whatever. And it's awkward because everybody knew it was bad. Like we all knew, like this is a problem. Like, what are we gonna say, you know? And all the kids knew it was bad. Finally, the kids start to come out and all the parents just start lying their faces off. Like just, like, just bravo, oh, amazing. That was, wow, you did, wow. You know, best play I've ever seen in my life. Honestly, I didn't even, I didn't want it to be over. I'm like, no, no way, you know? And my favorite is the one mom looks at her kid, she goes, look out Broadway. Look out, Broadway, we've got a new star coming. And I was like, well, she is neurotic, so she has that, you know what I mean? But look, we all left feeling terrible. Why? Because we all knew it wasn't good. And we all said it was good. It's like, well, we're, why? We're just fooling ourselves. And this is what our society feels like today, isn't it? And we look at like truly awful choices. Like we are sexualizing children. We have a secular society that is sexualizing children you know, encouraging horrendous choices sexually, morally, in regard to gender, race, in regard to career, uh, the definition of marriage, kids, so many things that it's like, man, this is like really, like this clearly empirically is hurtful. And what do we do? Wow, bravo, so bold, so brave, wow. And it doesn't feel good, does it? I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you look in your heart and it's like, man, there are parts of this. I mean, it's just, it doesn't feel, it, it's, not, it's not good. This is not good. 
This is what Jesus' best friend John says about the whole process in 1 John 1, 8. He says, um, guys, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. It's like, never has this been a truer statement. We live in a world with, with louder and louder and more and more shrill shouts says, we're beautiful, we're wonderful, just the way we are, we're perfect. And what are we doing? We're only fooling ourselves. Like you don't need to be a Christian to see this. We live at the richest time in human history, the safest, most prosperous time in human history in the best country ever. And what are we? I mean, the extroverts are more outraged and angry than ever, depressed, or I mean, anxious than ever, you know, feeling victimized. It's like, how can we feel victim? But we do. We do, because we tell ourselves we're perfect. We're only fooling ourselves. The introverts are more depressed than ever. They don't know how to process it because everybody says they're perfect. They don't feel perfect. They're depressed. They're shut down. Because we're only fooling ourselves. We're only fooling ourselves. We're not living in the truth. I just think so much of our society regarding shame, it's all smoke and mirrors. We're anxious and depressed trying to like keep the facade up. And it's like, what are we doing? What can we do? Some of you, you're leaning in. You're like, yeah, like this is, I mean, I relate to this. Like I know something's wrong. Like I tell myself, I get new clothes. I'll do the things, you know, whatever. I try to act good. Everybody tells me I'm good. I read that book, you know, what is it? Girl, wash your face. And then girls stop apologizing. Okay, like I'm doing it. You know, I read Richard Rohr's craziness and whatever, and we're trying to whatever. And it doesn't work. Didn't work for the author. You know, why? Because we're fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. We're living in this age where we're, and John says there's this simple solution. He says, look guys, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. We're not living in the truth. You don't need to be a Christian to see it. It's like, wow, wow. And I love Jesus' transcendent word. I mean, he is so genius. Then he gives us a solution. This is so good. He says, but if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just, justified to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, and this is a harsh word, wickedness. He says, look, you gotta admit that you're not good. You gotta take down the smoke and mirrors. All of us at some point, I mean, how old were you when you realized, man, it ain't right up here. Like there's something like, I'm not, it's not just that I've done bad things. Like I actually, you know, you're driving in your car and you think about how many kindergartners could I fight to the death with and win? And all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. Like why, where did that thought come from? That's not right. You know, why do I hate cats so much? It's like, what is, what is happening up here that's causing me? And all of a sudden you realize, man, I, Paul puts it this way. He says, look, for everyone who sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all fall short. We're not good. I mean, deep down, we're, we're shameful. And that sounds so wrong. It sounds so contrary. I mean, our society screams at us. You're just right. You're beautiful just the way that you are. And we know deep in our hearts. You don't need to be a Christian to see it. Like we are, we're only fooling ourselves. We told two generations that they weren't sinful and it didn't work, did it? Because it's, it's not true. Like it's actually not true. The older I get, the more I realize that humanity, it's not just that we're not perfect, we're depraved, totally and completely. Like on our own, we are, we're not good. Like think about with your kids, you know, they come out and pro tip, I never had to teach my kids to be evil. Now this is how you misbehave. This is how you be rebellious. I mean, my kids, when they were toddlers, would have, if they were larger, murdered me. Murdered me. They would have. You know, I mean, that's just in them. It's natural. I work with junior high boys and girls for years, and, you know, they act nice. Parents all the time, you know, the kids act nice. Now, install Bark on your kid's phone, that app that lets you see. I mean, they are, they're vicious. It's like, oh my, it's Lord of the Flies. Like, Piggy gets squished by a rock. Like, they're that mean. They are Lord of the Flies. It's like, wow, my kids, I didn't think that was in them. All of a sudden you install it. Bark reveals the conversations retroactively. Install it on your kid's phone. Trust me, help them, help them. You know what the older I get, it's not just kids, it's me. It's me. I know what's going on in here. 
and in here. And the older I get, the more I realize, wow, like, it's not just that I'm guilty. It's like, I'm, I'm shameful. I have wickedness in here. And Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. Second's equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. If you don't deal with shame, this is impossible. And this is the key to our series. I want you to understand this verse. It's the key to the Christian life and you can't do it if you do not mechanically process shame correctly. If you're an introvert who doesn't deal with shame, you're gonna hate yourself. How can you love your neighbor when you hate yourself? How can you love your neighbor as yourself? And this is what introverts do. You know, when we don't process shame, we shut down and we hide because we hate ourselves. How can we love others? Or if you're a fight introvert like me, you just get grumpy at everybody. I am loving people as I love myself, which is hateful because I hate me, right? That's not good either. Or if you're an extrovert who doesn't deal with shame, you're gonna blame everybody. Bounce from thing to thing. Shallow relationships, feelings of betrayal and anxiety. Hiding from the skyscraper of shame that's waiting to crush you. And God tells us that we can deal with our shame. He says, if we claim to have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. And again, you don't need to be a Christian to see like, man, Jesus is smart. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. And today, what I wanna do is I wanna give you three steps to dealing with shame. Three steps, three. I actually have a step zero in here because there's actually four, but I like three as a number because I'm a good old preacher boy and I like doing three points. So there is a step zero, but in the 12 steps, there's actually a step zero as well. And um, they just did that so it wasn't 13, you know, because it's a bad number. So anyway, I can do what I want, my microphone, right? Step zero, shame is not a problem. It's an indicator of a problem. Shame to me is like a warning light on your dashboard, okay? Like a bad warning light. Like for me, check engine light, that just tells me the engine's running. You know what I mean? Like this doesn't mean anything, okay? You know, traction control, who needs that? Wheel speed sensor, I'm not changing that. But you know, when you get a bad one, like an oil light in a non-LS vehicle, it's like, okay, like I have a problem. I have to deal with it. That's what shame is. It's a warning light. It's not time to sit and feel terrible. It's not time to blame others. When you feel shame, it's time to open up the hood of your heart and take action. And how do you diagnose the problem? What's your OBD2 scanner for your car? How do you deal with it? The way you deal with shame, very simple, okay? How did my sin create this shame? Extroverts, it's not how did their sin create the shame? No, no, no. How did my sin, how did my sin create this shame? Don't focus on how you're a victim. You focus on your role. Introverts, don't just roll around in it and say, oh, I'm terrible, I'm the worst. You need to get specific. Get specific about identifying what specific action, what specific sin are contribut is contributing to, to my feelings of shame in this moment. For me, an ultimate Frisbee. <clears throat> it's easy for me to blame Noah for murdering me because he did, you know, and that, that was bad, I'm dead now. But um, the reality is that's not what happened. My sin... Well, it's, it's perfectly okay to be competitive. I'm a competitive man. There's no problem with that. Some people aren't. It doesn't matter. As a Christian, you can try as hard as you can. You bring your best. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. My problem is I loved myself more than I loved him. And what does Jesus teach us? To love others as much as we love ourselves. I love me. I was only thinking about me. And my view in that game, it just shrank down to me, 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 me. I was a me monster, only thinking about me. And when I did that, I walked into sin against Noah. And I didn't think about his context. I didn't think about anything else other than me. I sinned against him, okay? Once you've identified your shame, number two, confess to God and another wise, godly person. And I know this might sound lame. I know some of you who are not Christians, this is where I lose you. But let me tell you, this is like a Jedi mind trick. Like these are not the droids you're looking for. Like this works, except it actually works because the force isn't real, but this is. Ethan Cross in his book, Chatter, talks about naming a mistake out loud and how talking about it actually reduces recidivism, which is your chances of returning to a negative trait. 
And this is a big deal. It's like in his book, he's like, this is a revolutionary new thing. And I'm like, well, actually not that new. I mean, Jesus did actually tell us about that 2000 years ago. That's two millennia before scientists discovered this great new thing called confession. And for me with Frisbee, I confessed my sin to the whole staff, prayed about it with them, apologized to Noah, personally asked for forgiveness. What do you feel shame about? Maybe it's something not serious, but maybe it's a, for some of us, a big deal. And you're like, Pastor, there's no way I can confess this. I mean, I'll lose my job. Or I might lose my marriage. Look, maybe just start with a church staff member. Ask for guidance and prayer. I think even confessing to them is the beginning of your road to freedom. Whatever it is, whatever it is, deal with shame through confession to God and godly people or it will come out sideways in your life. And it does. And I know so many people who are like Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, there's just this shame that you're carrying. Confession is the beginning of that road to freedom. And the third one, this is the tough one. The third one is the one I have a hard time with. The third one is the most difficult. Third one is, is the most challenging. Um, the third one though is super important. It's um, you gotta walk in faith. Here's what I mean by that. When I confess my sin of selfishness to our staff after Frisbee, it didn't make me feel better immediately or for weeks, you know, it didn't. I didn't feel better. I'm not telling you when you confess, it's like, oh man, I just feel better, that's it. For days, I kept going down my unhealthy neural pathway of like, you know, you're the worst, you're a terrible leader, you know, you're so bad, whatever. And here's the truth, by faith, by faith, I had to practice the spiritual discipline of receiving God's grace. Jesus, I receive your forgiveness and Noah's forgiveness. I'm not walking down that unhealthy neural pathway anymore. And I had to refuse to continue to ruminate my mind on it. I had to choose to move past it. And listen, that is a discipline. It is a discipline. I've heard people say all the time, pastor, I just can't get my mind off it. I just can't get my mind off it. What you're really saying is I keep choosing to think about it. It is a discipline. It is a discipline. It's like if you've been a chain smoker, you know, pack a day for however many years, you want to smoke that cigarette. You want it, that's a, that's a joint, cigarette. You want to smoke a cigarette, right? I think, I don't smoke, I don't know, okay? Um, that's what you wanna do, right? You wanna go back to it. Why? It's destructive, it hurts you, but it's comforting. It's comforting. And shame is too. I mean, it's terrible, but it's comforting. And you wanna deal with, you know, I'm a victim, it's their fault if you're an extrovert, I'm terrible and I'm the worst if you're an introvert, whatever. You wanna go down and you need to choose not to go down that road. For me, it is Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. I am forgiven, I am forgiven. When dealing with the worst of it, and for me every year, like, you know, an alarm clock right around December, January timeframe, I start to have shame get out of control in my life for a number of different reasons, but it gets like very intense. And, you know, just constantly, you know, you're the worst, you're the terriblest, worst, most awful, whatever, right? And about four o'clock in the afternoon, that's when it really gets out of control for me. And what I've just started doing is developing a habit during that season of working out, right? Because it's really hard to think about how terrible I am when I need oxygen to not die, you know? So it's helpful, it just gets my mind off of it. I know a lot of people who reject the grace of God. I mean, you've asked Jesus to forgive your sins and lead your life, but you reject the grace of God, making self-destructive choices, living and reveling in your shame, rejecting the promises of God because you refuse to walk in faith that you are forgiven and you are free and you're not defined by that old thing anymore. Receiving God's grace includes forming a neural pathway, a new neural pathway that is difficult and it's a discipline that God calls us to. So I wanna ask you to really think, marinate, what step are you on? What step are you on in your life? This is a process that unfolds. And this is something that we take a limit, like we, we take a gauge for where we're at in many different phases of our life. Areas, spaces, places, sexually, financially, 
relationally, spiritually. How are you doing with shame? I believe that you can't become a Christian without dealing with your shame by admitting to God publicly and privately that you are a sinner in need of his grace. And this doesn't just mean admitting, hey, I've done a bad thing, God. I need you to forgive me for that bad thing, okay? Being a Christian, it begins with admitting, I've done a bad thing because I'm a bad person. The Bible would say wicked and shameful. And I need God to redeem me by his grace. I need to receive his grace. I think in church sometimes, in, in, including this church, uh, it's not other church, I'm talking about our church sometimes. We talk about um, we talk about a God is for you, how much he loves you, which he does. And we talk about you know, how following his teachings leads to the highest level of life satisfaction, which it does. But I believe the cornerstone of our faith, the healthy range of faith, Christianity, it begins with admitting that we are shameful, that we fall short of God's glorious standards. We confess our sins to him, asking him to forgive our sins and lead our life. And then we walk in faith by receiving his forgiveness. And this third step here, the Bible calls it, well, the Bible, theologians call it sanctification or spiritual growth, but it's this process of God taking more and more residence in, a, in your life. Like the process of inviting Jesus into more and more of these different areas as he drives out shame, brings in grace and new life. And I really want you to take an inventory. Look, today, um, you know, we've got discussion questions and blah, 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 and things and reasons. And, you know, discussion questions on the way home, like, hey, honey, how you doing? How, where are you feeling shameful? I, get, I want you to have good discussions. We have those written. I'd encourage you to do that. But also on your own, I want to encourage you to take an inventory of your life and really begin processing shame this week. Spend some time with the Lord. Open up your Bibles to 1 John 1, 8 and 9 and really process God's truth in your life. Spend some time. And for a lot of us, you know, <clears throat> Spending time with God by reading our Bibles isn't, you know, we don't like do it all the time. But this week, I want you to go through this process. I want you to process your shame, find your sin, confess your sin to God and another person, and then walk in faith. Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. Invite him into those different areas. As we leave this series, I think this is the best dessert sermon I can give to you. You know, sopapillas. Talk about sin and depravity. Perfect, Pastor. As we close, I want to ask you to stand to your feet, and I want to read God's word for you. I want you maybe just to close your eyes for a minute as I read God's word to you. I want you to hear the living word of God. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Let's pray, God, we receive your grace. We confess our sins to you and we receive your grace. God, I thank you that because of your work on the cross, shame no longer defines us. Instead, it refines us. God, I ask that you would refine our characters until we reflect your image in our life. God, I ask for people that have been trapped like Moses in shame for decades, would you set them free by your grace? By your spirit, would you give them the courage and the discipline to daily walk in faith that we are forgiven, free, and new? Thank you for your grace. As a church together, we corporately receive your grace. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said amen and amen. Let's sing this last song together.